Hello and welcome to the Native Angelino and 1929 podcast in conjunction with the newsletter, of course. We today are recording in Los Angeles. It's a rainy day in Los Angeles, so yes, Albert Hammond, it does rain in Southern California sometimes, every now and then. So on this Monday, March 28th, the pandemic is a full two years in swing, or has been around for two years. We've had approximately 80 million reported cases in the United States and almost 1 million deaths. That's hard to fathom. That's far more than in all the, the wars that we participated in over the years. So the topic of today's podcast, though, relates to a subject that I find extremely interesting and will be a focus going forward. And that topic is, how do we reinvent ourselves? How do we overcome adversity? What happens when you're 40, 45, 50, 55 years old, and you're forced out of the labor market? Either you lose a job, you get priced out, technology pushes you out, your company gets bought, closes, whatever it might be. How do you come back into the market when you know, technology has changed so much and you're considered one of the older people? So we come at this first from a macro perspective, from an economy-wide perspective, and we interview a uh, professor, Professor Yamane of Pitzer College in Claremont, who's an expert in labor markets, macroeconomics, Japan and the United States. In a subsequent episode, we will also take a macro perspective, but we'll look at a book written by Ray Dalio, the the founder of the largest hedge fund uh, in the world. And the book is called The Changing World Order, where he comes at it more from an investing standpoint and looks for patterns over time, also very interesting and directly related to you know, how do we retool. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, there will also be a written work to go along with it available at 1929.live. Um, my name is Linus Yamane. I'm a professor of economics at Pitzer College. Uh, and mostly I, I, I think about macroeconomics and, and my research uh, uh, recently has, has been focused on the Japanese economy. And well, I'm, I'm interested in Japanese economy because I think they're leading the world in, in, in major ways, in the most, both in good ways and in bad. Um, but in terms of um, declining population growth rates, so Japan actually has a declining population. Um, other countries are, uh, I think it will soon be, Italy is right there, and other countries are seeing declining population growth rates as well. Uh, so I think the, so we're seeing in Japan what I think the whole world is going to experience in the next uh, 50 years. And what so, does a, a declining population do? Um, I think it changes all the rules that, that we've been living by. Uh, so from, we know that from 1800, think about the globe, global economy, from 1800 to about 1960, what well, we saw was these rising uh, population growth rates around the world. And since 1960, uh, world population growth rates have been declining. And, and, uh, and so I, I like to quote uh, uh, Warren Buffett when he says, only when the tide goes out uh, do you see, do you realize who's been swimming naked. Um, if you think about it, is if your population is growing, it means demand for everything 
whether it's housing or or hamburgers, uh, uh, clothes, all of it's going to be rising every year. And so if you're in business, it doesn't, even if you're not particularly good at the business, uh, everything else being the same, you're going to see increasing demand for your product, right? And, and so you're going to stay afloat. Whereas uh, in a shrinking, with shrinking populations, that means demand for everything is falling over time, right? The demand for toothpaste, housing, everything. Um, and so that makes it a much tougher sort of business environment. And, and uh, so Japan's sort of seeing that in Japan, you know, all these houses are, have been abandoned in the rural areas because nobody wants to live there, um, right? And, and everyone's sort of moved into yes. the urban areas. Um, so, it, so it's going to create a lot of challenges that, that we're not used to, that most of our models right now are really based on data on how, say, how economies have functioned over the last 100 years. But during most of that period, our population was growing. And, and now the, I think the rules will be very different in the next 50 years. Now, so if the overall population is slowing or not growing, uh, what impact then does the, the components of the population make? In other words, the educational level, uh, if it's slided more towards very highly educated or unskilled workers, and, and how does that look as you start to think about it? Um, so... So in the United States, we've had, um, obviously, there's been a lot of uh, steady sort of technological change since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So for you know, over 200 years, uh, technology has, has been growing and, and improving every year. Um, and that's led to what economists call, uh, the term we have is, we call a skill-biased technological change. The kind of technological change that we have um, uh, increases the productivity of our skilled workers, and it really doesn't have much of an impact on the productivity of our unskilled workers. And and over time, <clears throat> at least uh, in the United States uh, through the 1800s and until about 1970, uh, we were there was because of technological change, we were always increasing. There was increasing demand for skilled workers, but our educational system was good enough to. E- continually increase the supply of skilled workers and so that the supply and demand were basically equal and so wages for skilled workers weren't going up you know unusual and really higher than the wages for unskilled workers and and so if you looked at income inequality in the united states it actually decreased from say the roaring 20s into 1970 there was just much you know more and more equality every decade but since 1970 there's been this dramatic change where we're just not keeping up with the demand anymore. Uh, we're not the producing demand, enough the skilled demand work, for high skilled skilled, workers. highly skilled workers. Yeah, yeah skilled workers. Um, initially, by skilled workers, it was basically people who went to college. Getting a college education meant that you were able to read and write. Uh, you could read the instructions for these new kinds of uh, equipment and, and use them. Um, and so the earnings gap between uh, college graduates and high school graduates just increase uh, quite steadily from 1970 to 2000 just get, get kept getting wider and wider and so certainly the wisdom when i was growing up was that well you have to go to college right to to get a good job um and in fact uh, even today you know the earn, the average earnings of someone who's graduated from high school compared to someone with average earnings of someone who's just graduated from college there's about a million dollar sort of gap in there in lifetime earnings um but since 2000, um, by skilled workers, uh, 
most of the increase in the uh, income inequality in the United States is, is not between college graduates and high school graduates. It's really between people who major in computer science, uh, engineering, economics, physics, uh, sort of fields where you learn to use math to help you think more clearly about the world. Um, and their salaries are continuing to rise, uh, but the salaries of uh, the other college graduates have not. And so we see that most of the increase in income inequality in the United States since 2000 is explained by this increasing divergence uh, in the earnings of uh, across majors. And so that's a completely different story than what we saw before, uh, before 2000. Have you ever seen this sort of dynamic before? Uh, no. I realized technology was different, but this sort of Yes, but now it's, yeah, there's a, that divergence among uh, college graduates uh, uh, has really just been continually increasing since, since the last two decades. Does that suggest then that the unskilled workers just fall further and further behind? Or are there unskilled jobs that are produced in a growing economy that keep pace? Um, I'm not worried about um, the labor market is amazingly resilient so that um, there isn't, you know, the unemployment rates today are, you know, three, four percent, even with this, you know, coming out of this pandemic. So that's, you know, by historical standards, that's perfectly fine. And so the um, there's, you know, supply will always be demand. And so there'll be jobs out there for everyone. So it's not going to lead to mass unemployment or anything like that. Um but it doesn't mean that people are sort of satisfied with the jobs uh, that that they may get um, if they don't have the right right skills set. So d- does that lead to a, a dumbing down of society or a society in general falling further behind competitors and losing its leadership position? Certainly, in the United States, that's a concern because um, the areas where there's you know there's increasing demand are are basically for STEM majors uh, and say econ majors. Uh, but we're not producing them at the rate that other countries in the world are producing them. And so the United States, roughly 20% of college students are majoring in STEM. Uh, but if I, but if you look at most countries around the world, the figure is closer to 30%. So if I look at some India, Russia, China, I mean, 30% of their students are going to be majoring in STEM once they get to college. And so in those countries, right, they're meeting the demand for STEM majors. But in the United States, we, we are not. So, and over what time period would you say uh, before it becomes a a more critical problem here? Um, I think it's fairly critical right now. Like, so, uh, not only do students in the United States not major in STEM, if you look at the graduate programs, again, like electrical engineering, computer science, economics, the vast majority of students in graduate programs and PhD programs, master's programs are international students, right? They're not they're not domestic students from the United States because they're not getting, American students aren't getting the training in really in high school or college to go on to get a PhD in these fields. So they develop the intellectual capital here and then head home. Um, Some of them, many of them will stay uh, depending on where they're coming from. uh, Because the standard living, as long as the standard living in the United States is higher than where they're coming from, they may stay here for a while. But then, but the rest of the world is catching up. So then eventually more and more of them will go back. Interesting. And then, so that that's that's not a question of uh, anything other than economics. Yes, purely economics. And what's if if you were to advise the 
I don't know whoever the decision makers would be at this point, but the 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 national leaders on how and, and the local leaders as to how to approach this. What what would you advise immediately, and how long would it actually take to close that gap? You know, from twenty to thirty or twenty five or some meaningful change where you would say, okay, we're now back in the race. Um, <laughs> my th- obviously, I think it it starts with you know preschool to to kinder uh, you know kindergarten through K through twelve education um, because. Uh, by all these sort of international assessment sort of tests, um, our, our American students sort of fall behind sort of their peers uh, more and more as the years go on, right? So, uh, you know, saying primary school, they're doing perfect, per- pretty well uh, compared to their international peers. But by the time you get to junior high and high school, right, those gaps just get larger and larger. And then they go on to college, and again, they, they get larger. Um, and then in, in all of the the fields like in the, whether it's engineering, computer science, economics, or physics, uh, you need to have those basic math skills, and and you need and, and it really helps to have them you know learn those when you're in you know uh, from the K through twelve in your K through twelve years, um, and you know once you start not uh, if you miss some lessons early on in in your life then it's hard it gets harder and harder to sort of catch up. Uh, and, and so if you get, you know, even, so even if in college you want to major in STEM, if you don't come into, you know, college with the right, uh, with enough, uh, math skills, it can be a challenge. So what does this look like in five or 10 or 15 years if the U S doesn't change policies? Um, yeah, I think the gaps just get large, I think get larger and larger. Um, right now, I think we still have the best sort of, some of the graduate education really in the world. So if you want a PhD in, uh, in, in any of the STEM fields, I think you want to come to the United States. Um, but I don't think that's going to be true much longer. And, 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 and much longer determined as a, uh, a generation or? You certainly, yeah, within a generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, but, you know, 100 years ago, you, you, you went to Germany or you went to England if you wanted the sort of the best sort of education. Now it's the United States, right? But I think uh, that, that tide will shift as well. So envision for us a generation from now with no change to the policies. What does our standard of looking, look, uh, living look like? And just the day to day activities of the average American, um, what, what do we start to see and, and actually feel? In terms well, certainly what we're seeing already is that if you're looking at per capita GDP, for example, as a measure of our standard of living, um, throughout the 1900s, uh, per capita GDP grew say about 2.1% a year, which may not sound like a lot, but if you're growing at 2.1% a year, it means that the, your standard of living is doubling every with every generation, right? And so every um, all parents could kind of expect their kids to have a standard of living, which was really twice their standard of living by the time their kids got to be their age. What, okay, so you're at, at a 2% growth rate, you're talking about 35 years. To yeah, go, yeah, yes, yeah. And, and can we d- define, so GDP meaning the amount of production divided by the population. So it's production yeah. per person. Yes, yeah. so it's all the value of all the goods and services that we're producing. And if we make it per capita, it's the, you know, we would split it up equally among all the um, men, women, and children in the United States. And that kind of define our standard of living, how much we're consuming. And that just continued to grow very, very you know, uh, basically double every 35 years in the, in the 1900s. 
But since 2000 in the United States, it really it's growing at less than 1% a year. Um, so we're not really seeing that growth that we've been accustomed, at least I've been accustomed to. Capita uh, GDP less than 1%. Yeah, yes. And so I don't think today, you know, I certainly talked to my students and I asked, do you, do you expect to have a standard of living higher than your parents? And I think most of them realize, no, they're probably not going to have a standard of living higher than their parents because we're just not, uh, the, our standard of living is just is not growing anymore uh, the way it used to. Now, you know, as you know, I have an interest in looking at the, the career transition of, uh, I haven't quite figured out of what age, you know, if it's above 40 or 45 or 50, mm -hmm. but there's somewhere in here where you're, I won't say priced out of the job market, but the, the available options shrink pretty dramatically. And yeah. much of that, I would argue, is a result of technological change. Right. And if I look at my own industry, investment banking or sales and trading, you know, we have uh, a situation where I started in, I graduated from Pitzer College in 1986. So I was in the job market by the, the first of 87. And there are functions that, you know, were 10 persons necessary to complete that I would say it's now it's, it's accurate to say it's somewhere between one and a half and two people. Mm -hmm. to complete the tasks. And as that is, you know, evolved, it just makes sense that with the, what I like to say is the Googleization of information where information becomes very cheap, mm -hmm. that there's less demand for my skill set. Mm -hmm. um, if we extrapolate and say that even if we lag and we're only producing at 20%, you know, of, of PhDs or whatever the measure was we were using, um, do we get to a point where there's been such change that our basic needs are serviced, but there's no longer demand for a greater and greater portion of the population, and thus we're left with a larger unemployed class. Yeah, um, some I mean, uh, 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 you can also sort of you know see this as glass half full or half empty. Um, automation allows us to produce a lot more goods and services with a lot less labor. Right? And we don't really want, I always say, tell my sister, like, we don't really want to work, right? What we really want to do is just consume. Like, that's not the point of life is not to work. Yes. <laughs> the point of life is to sort of enjoy life. And so if we can have, you know, um, just a few people working in, 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 in basically robots, automation, growing all the food that we need to, to eat, uh, manufacturing all the clothing that we need to wear, um, and the rest of us can just spend our time writing poetry. I mean, that's that's in some sense ideal, so, right? So yes, but how does the buy side work? How does the unemployed? So are we looking at a universal basic income? Yeah. Or... Yes. So in principle, we could create a society where you know you don't you can we'll provide we can provide everyone with all the basic needs, uh, food, housing, you know, uh, clothing, shelter, um, and and then uh, and and people can just do whatever they can just play tennis, they can play, they can write poetry, whatever they want to do. Um, because we're, we have, we're productive enough to sort of uh, produce all the goods and services that we need. Okay. So let's think through that then. If that's the solution, a universal basic income or something along mm -hmm. those lines, how do we get there? It sounds to me like a terrible class struggle. Yes. Uh, yeah. So how do yes. we get from here to there? It makes perfect sense to me, but I, uh, you know, what, what do the great thinkers have to say about so that's so it's it's feasible whether or not uh obviously in, in democracy you need to get people get support for it something andrew yang was pushing in his presidential campaign was pushing for universal basic income 
Um, I think which appeared sort of, to be way out of the mainstream, and, and yeah, I don't it, know how much attention you received, but at least you raised the idea. Yeah, so I think more and more, I think that would become part of the the, the dialogue. Um, uh, so I, you know, so, uh, but yeah, obviously that that's a more of a political issue. Um, yeah, and you know, I'm not sure how how that's uh, going to play out, but but I think that's where uh, we need to go. And. Are there leaders other than an Andrew Yang that are seriously looking at these policies and, and have the forward thought? Or if you look at the, you know, Bureau of Labor, or is there anybody really creating and pushing and teaching these philosophies to the but certainly, but certainly other policies, whether it's the minimum wage, right, or universal health care, are sort of getting at the idea that everybody, right, uh, in society, uh, you know, deserves a certain standard of living. Um, that these are human rights, right? And 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 so that that's certainly always part of the discussion. And as society gets richer and richer, um, then those are things that we can do, right? That, that we can afford to do. How long have you been at Pitzer College? Um, so I started in 1988. So I guess that would be, I didn't, I didn't have you. you yeah. I, I missed you by two years. Yeah. So two years years. afterwards. And what, uh, well, what's the composition of the school now in terms of numbers and, and, uh, just the demographics of the, I think we're at about, uh, close to 1100 students now. Um, and I think we're shooting, uh, I think we may be, uh, shooting for like 1200 students or, or in sort of a, uh, trying to grow this uh, the the student body, um, I think when I first started the number the enrollment uh, we must have had I don't know seven or eight hundred students. Yeah, we were we were seven hundred ish. Yeah, uh, so it's certainly and the and the annual on campus tuition, room <laughs> and board. It's hard for me to remember, but I believe it started with the two. It was in okay. the twenties, maybe thirty thousand. Yeah, maybe, maybe and and now it is. Well, now f- four years will cost you three hundred thousand dollars. Right? So it's up two hundred percent. Yeah. So so this is another serious sort of problem um, that and and Pitts is not out of line. If I look at some all the Claremont colleges, any Ivy League university, uh, if you uh, four years is is going to cost you about three hundred thousand dollars, and and that just doesn't make any sense. So uh, compared to the kinds of earnings that you can expect after you graduate from college, um, if you uh, and so certainly going again, going back to 1970 or so in 1970, for example, uh, there was if you were an in-state student, you could go to UC, UCLA or UC Berkeley for free. There was no tuition back in 1970. Mm-hmm. Um, and and. And at least having a, a pub, public universities that had zero tuition sort of kept the lid on private sector, right? The private university tuition as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since then, um, uh, the, the co- you know, tuition for college tuition is just, it just you know, has exploded. And, and certainly in real terms, it's now three and a half, four times more expensive than what it was in the 1980s. Um, and now it just, I don't think it makes financial sense. So if I go, uh, it's only as an investment. Uh, if I go to you know the 
to, to the Claremont colleges. And I certainly, if I major in theater or, or studio art, um, it's just not, you know, I have to spend five and I have to spend $300,000 to do it. It doesn't make any financial sense. Um, uh, if you're, you know, so again, so uh, if your parents are paying for it, maybe fine. If you've got a trust fund, that's fine. Uh, uh, but if, uh, but otherwise, if you're taking out student loans and you have to basically, uh, you have to pay those loans back after you graduate, you have to be thinking about your earnings ability after you graduate. And so you have to be thinking about your major more now uh, than than it would have been through uh, 50 years ago. Are we close to a societal breaking point? Um, structures actually break down and we have civil war? Um, that I don't know. But I think higher education um, uh, has to change. So I don't think the current model uh, is sustainable. Certainly if I look at most universities around the world, public universities, the tuition today is about $2,000 a year. The United States is the only country, and we're just way out of line in how much we charge for higher education in the U.S. So even in the public, you know, if I go to UCLA uh, or, or UC Berkeley, even, you know, they're, they're going to charge me $20,000 a year um, in tuition. And of course, we charge even more here in Claremont. Uh, that's just not sustainable. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think that... Um, and we've already seen last, certainly the last five, six years, we've seen uh, tuition sort of stabilize in the United States, um, uh, certainly after adjusting for inflation, but uh, stabilize because it just, uh, it just can't go up anymore. I think it just, so, that's, that, so this whole model, uh, I think, is going to have to change. And, and what spurs the change? Is it an anti-gang um, getting elected? Well, also, well, people just refusing to pay. Uh, um, so there'll be, there are certainly... Uh, like the Florida just passed uh, uh, this legislation, uh, basically requiring public universities in Florida to basically provide data on uh, basically the student loan debt of their students when they graduate, and then what their earnings are, uh, you know, one year out, like five years out, uh, basically, and, and and to show uh, so that so that people are more informed, right? Uh, have their eyes wide open when they enroll in any kind of you know, high, higher education program. Um, and I think once, uh, because right now it's really vague. I, think, I don't think most people know like how much it's going to cost. I don't think most people know that it's really hard to get out from under student loan debt. And I think most people don't realize uh, what the earnings, uh, expected earnings are of, of graduates from many programs and many universities. And once that information comes out, I think uh, there'll be much more pressure on the universities to change the way they operate. I mean, I, I would argue that even when I graduated in, in 1986, you know, I went into uh, investment banking and I made enough in the first few years to pay off my loans and, you know, mm -hmm. under 10 years, seven years, six years, whatever it was. But if I hadn't gone on that career path. Right. You know, it might have taken me 25 or 30 or never. Right, right, right. Frankly, so I, I realize it's gotten far worse. Yeah. But it's been a problem for quite a while. Yes, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So so let's transition a bit and talk about my, my area of focus, which is the, the, not to use the word twice, but the transition from a, an older person in the labor force. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, it is... Uh, just let's start broadly. What do you think? If, if you were to go into another profession right now, 
um, you have a high level of expertise, so I would imagine uh, you would find employment. But it, but in general, uh, let's say that you and I are looking for a new career. What do, what do we do? I think it's well. I think it's really hard, and and um, I can tell you, it's really hard. Yes. No. I I, I guess. I, I guess. Certainly, I have friends um, yes, uh, who is who are who are struggling, um, and it's extremely challenging. Um, uh, so I don't. I don't think. I don't. I don't have any answers there, uh, but I do think that the world is shifting, um, so that I don't think. Uh, the amount of education or what kind of degrees you have will matter as much in the future, uh, but what your skill set will matter. Um, so, uh, so you know, so what, and, and so keeping up with the with uh, with the current skill set, I think, is going to be critical. And then, as long as you have those skills, I think, then you can find uh, be able to find employment. Certainly, Google is looking at you know, different sort of employment models. Right? Uh, they pay much less attention to what kind of formal education you have or what degrees, but basically what can you do? And, and, and that's how they make their hiring decisions more and more. That's interesting. And given the connectivity, uh, one can live anywhere. So we're no longer geographically connected. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that, and I, I presume you agree, but I'm interested. The pandemic seems to have accelerated the acceptance of work from home and, Mm -hmm. And you know, really ramped us up the curve. Uh, I presume you agree. Oh yes, of course. Yeah. yeah, it just speeded up. It just speeded up the process that we were already in. But the yeah, the the move toward remote work and automation. And what are what are the early results as people look at uh, building relationships via a screen versus sitting and having a drink together and you know shaking hands i'm not i'm not sure i haven't seen uh, work on that yet i suspect um uh i don't know if i could tell this story so we were hiring a um a dean of faculty at pitzer uh many years ago and we, I was, and we were interviewing one candidate and we asked her what do you think the future is for liberal arts colleges with all this distance learning that's going on and then her response was, uh, do you think uh, 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 900, oh, this may be dated, do you think 900 numbers will ever replace sex, was her answer. And I think there's something about the, this per, the personal interaction which yes. you can't replicate online. And, and so I don't think that will, you know, so the idea of teaching students face-to-face uh, there's something there that that uh, yeah, the, you can't the immersion, get ma- the immersion the, matters. Yeah, so yeah. I think uh, um, that's still important. That's still going to be important. Uh, so I don't think it'll go completely remote. I mean, there are a lot of advantages to to uh, something we've adopted. Even in my classes, uh, uh, adopt all these technologies during uh, COVID, and and I'm gonna and, and and so that we so like zooming with students. It's a kind of a new thing. But I'm gonna certainly even post COVID, I'm gonna continue doing that because it's so convenient. And so I have office, have physical office hours now, uh, but I also Zoom with students in the evenings. Uh, so it's, it's not something I so really. So it's, a, it's done a hybrid before. model. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that's we're gonna take the best of both worlds and 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 move on with those. So so it's certainly changing the way we I mean, do clearly things. Clearly, there's there's benefit to the the look and feel of this versus yeah. a versus an email. Yes. 
but uh-huh. not the same as sitting face to face, clearly. Um, so what does that imply for wages? Is there any direct correlation that, that's obvious? Um, n- no, I don't see why that should change. Um, other other than be... focus on the skill set. Yes. Yeah. Like how, yeah. What, what are you bringing to the table? Um, and people might be willing to take a pay cut because they have more flexibility on the job. Uh, if they're working remotely, yeah, lack of, you know, commute time and all these other things. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, so what does that imply for productivity then? Is there, uh, have, can we look at it and say, all right, you're commuting two hours less. And even if you hold the hours of work constant, which I don't think they are, but even if you did, um, do, do we yet know? Uh, I haven't seen the, the research on that. Um, but that would be the current. Yes. 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 What is the most interesting piece of research you've seen of late, the last year or two or three, on the evolving labor force? Um, Hmm. (laughs) um, Or surprising, or. um, I still think it's. I mean, I I forwarded the the work by. uh, Larry Katz and Claudia yes, Golden, I, I um, which I, yeah. So I think that's the, yeah, the, uh, uh I think that's the, well, the most important work. Is there a, uh, particular element or chapter or the, uh, you know, I found the chapter on mass higher education, in the 20th century to be very helpful in what you described early on in our call. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, the United States used to be, you know, number one, the, in terms of the say primary school enrollment back in the, by, by 1850. Right. And then we used to be number one in high school enrollment, certainly by say 1940. Um, and so all of the by, uh, literacy rates in the United States used to be the highest in the world. Um, but, you know, none of that's true anymore. Uh, all the, you know, most other countries have caught up, if not surpassed the U S uh, so if you could have one change right now or one pool of capital to allocate towards it, would it be towards early childhood education? Would that be the first thing you attack? Yes, I think uh, I think what we need, uh, we're stuck in this model of uh, local control of uh, public schools, which was really good in the 1800s as a way of uh, expanding education out to right to the West. Um, so, so that was certainly critical in, in the 1800s, but I don't think that model works as well now. And so I would certainly uh, push for um, not funding public schools with local property taxes, but funding them at the national level and making sure that everybody, uh, no matter what public school you go to, basically has the same level of funding. So national standards. Yeah. And what's the probability of that happening? Uh, probably close to zero. <laughs> yeah. um, so what do we do? Unfortunately. <laughs> so if, if, if I know you have a, a son, do you have grandchildren? Uh, no, no. Oh. He just uh, graduated from college ah. two years ago. So. so what would you tell your grandchildren, you know, in three or five years as they, as they grow and you advise them as to what to study and how to work. Would you send them directly into STEM? Um, I did. So, uh, so my son did major in computer science and in math. And, and so, and so he's, and now he's working on the Google cloud, right? So he keeps, keeps that, uh, keeps that running. Um, 
But again, the challenge, but I still worry about him, right? I guess all parents worry about their kids no matter what they're doing. And, um, and again, he needs to stay on the frontier, right? If he needs to sit in order to stay employed. And, and so this is a field which, again, is growing by leaps and bounds. And, and so I view that as a challenge. Um, and so I worry about him. So, how, you know, what, is he, what does he need to do to make sure that, that he's on the edge uh, all the time? Does the profession, does your profession still look at the labor force as you come into the labor force? Uh, assume you've gone to graduate school at, uh, I don't know, 25, let's say, and work till 65 and retire? Or have have those things changed? Um, no, I think that's still. Um, I mean, some faculties stay on because uh, there's no mandatory retirement in the United States, um, and so uh, so fac- faculty uh, stay. But so for the have... labor force in general, do we still look? At, is that the path that we have a, a forty year? We may accept that life expectancy. I mean, the concerns are going to be life expectancy, though. Though it's been tricky in the United States for the last several day, uh, several years. Um, but generally, but it's, a do- hope- it's a dozen years higher now than it was. Yeah, so, ago, so people live longer, um, and then you know our social security system is not uh, uh, is not uh, is in trouble. Um, certainly it's a pay, it's a pay as you go system that just doesn't work when your population isn't growing anymore. And so, uh, it, uh, so it's a bit, you know, so it's not a, uh, since social security is not solvent, you, we're going to have to have people working longer, uh, and not retiring. Right. So are we to, thinking to 65 is now 70 or. Yeah. I mean, so I think they should be gradually increasing the, the, the age at which you can start to, to collect uh, social security. Um, and the, they're certainly going to have to do that. They're going to have to lower the, the benefits uh, as we go forward. They're going to have to raise the age, right, at which you can start collecting. Um, so we clearly need to reform education, healthcare, and you know and these elements. What What is the culminating event? The culminating? The, yeah, what happens such that these changes get made? Is it? literally fighting in the streets is it i mean how, how i mean i think it's going to be a gradual thing because we, like something like social security um it's just not it's not solvent so so they're going to have to make changes because the money's just not going to be there and so they're going to gradually have to raise i mean the, your options are pretty clear right you have to start raising social security taxes um right now it's a regressive tax right so you after I'm not sure at what point, but around 120,000 or so, right? You don't pay any, yeah, you don't pay for, you don't pay additional social security taxes. Um, That's probably, you know, so you could sort of change that. Uh, Again, change the benefit levels. You can then change the age at which you collect. So gradually things will have to change. So so that solves social security. Yeah. Uh, But let's take healthcare then. Uh, The solution then would say, well, let's move the age of uh, Medicare up. Yeah, but in fact, that's the opposite of what we need. Yes. So, yeah. Uh, how do we approach something like that, where we have underinsured folks, a, a larger pool of underinsured folks at younger age? Yes. Uh, yet the the system actually needs us to go the other way. Yes. So no, uh, obviously it's a political issue. We need to have really buy-in, so so that uh, people sort of realize that healthcare is something that everybody everybody needs 
um, that's a basically human right and 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 we need to provide it. But um, so Bernie's correct. Political issue, yeah. So, um, I mean, there are other things uh, concerns as well. Most state pension systems are not solvent either. Yeah. There might be one or two states uh, that are almost uh, fully funded, but the rest of them are not. Um, so again, this, that's going to be a, a major crisis uh, uh, going forward. But again, this is all because of demographics. Without a, you know, population growing, uh, then uh, you just pay these all these pay as you go kind of systems just uh, are not no longer going to work. Mm-hmm. Not very optimistic. optimistic. Um, no, so I think the next fifty years will certainly much be much more challenging financially than the previous 50, 50 years. Um, so, among other things, I, like I tell my kids, like you've got to save most of your money, right? I mean, he's got to, because he's got to have saved much more than I saved, because the rates of return uh, in the stock market are just going to be much lower going forward than they have been in the past. So, with that, we close this podcast. Uh, I invite you to see the written work that goes with it at 1929.live, that's dot L-I-V-E. And as I said, we will continue along this path with a review of Ray Dalio's book and a further discussion with a uh, psychologist that focuses on labor change and the like. And uh, again, I thank you for taking the time to listen.